0: Passion for God, and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxxas. So if you're new, I would like to welcome you. It's great to have you. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors, and at Crosswinds, our mission is reaching people with Jesus. And I want to tell you how that happens in how we as very ordinary people and very ordinary ways go are able to be used by God to reach people with Jesus Christ. And this story comes from the Spencer campus. This past summer on the Spencer campus, they had an off-site worship service. You know how they, you go to the local park, you do church there. It's one of the fun things you do in the summer. Now... From a pastor's perspective, I can tell you, it does not matter how many times you tell people that church won't be at church on Sunday. And you can tell them all day long, there are some people who will always forget or who somehow will not get the message, even though you said it 12 times. And the parents are like, that sounds like my children. (laughs) Yeah, well, this is one of those stories. That Sunday where the Spencer campus was having an off-site service, Um, Two people showed up at the original Spencer campus at the same time to an empty parking lot looking at one another as, what happened? And they both realized at the same time that that was the week of the off-site service. One of them was an elderly lady with a car, the other one was an Iowa Lakes college student and all he had was a bicycle. The elderly lady quickly realized there's no way that this guy on the bicycle is going to make it across town to the park and make the church service. So she said, well, why don't you hop in? I'll give you a ride and we'll be able to get there just as it starts. And that's what they did. That began what was a really fun and totally beautiful relationship. Because she realized that Iowa Lakes college student from Brazil needed a ride to church in the winter. BECAUSE HE HAD NO WAY TO GET THROUGH THE SNOW, AND SO SHE BEGAN GIVING HIM THOSE rides. HE ALSO NEEDED RIDES ON OCCASION TO WALMART TO BE ABLE TO GET SOME FOOD, AND SHE BEGAN GIVING HIM THOSE RIGHTS. AND THEN SHE, OUT OF THE SWEETNESS OF A GRANDMA'S HEART, SAID, YOU KNOW, I'M GOING TO BAKE HIM SOME COOKIES, AND THEN I'M GOING TO BAKE HIM SOME BREAD. AND HE NEEDS A GOOD HOME COOKED MEAL. AND SO HE STARTED DROPPING, SHE STARTED DROPPING THESE THINGS OFF, you know, ABOUT ONCE A WEEK AT HIS DORMITORY. Now this resulted in a number of Iowa Lake's college students who quickly became very jealous of him. And they started asking, what do I need to do to get an American grandma who makes me cookies too? And he said, it's really simple. It's just go to this church that I started going to. Which by the way, once we relocated, it's across the parking lot from the Iowa Lake College Student Dormitory. So it's just a walk for them. So this has resulted in a number of Iowa Lake College students going to church on Sunday, hoping they can meet these American people, especially these nice old ladies who bake cookies. And it's so neat, because the the door has been opened to the gospel by just an elderly lady seeing a need and meeting a need in a young student's life. At Crosswinds, we often say that we believe good works creates goodwill, which opens doors to people hearing the good news of the gospel. That's a perfect example of that. And I tell you that story, not just so you can have that nice, soft feeling in your heart, but I tell you that story so hopefully that story can be relived in your life. That when you're at church and you see somebody new that you don't know, walk up and build a relationship with them. Be kind to them and do good to them. When you're around town and you see somebody who is in need or maybe could use a little help, go out of your way to take the initiative to do good for them and, and build a bridge. And you never know what God can do when that door begins to open. Amen? Well, that brings us to our study. We're continuing this morning in our study of 2 Samuel. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 8. What we've seen so far in Second Samuel is David has become king over all of Israel. Uh, David has pushed the Philistines out of the Israelite territory. David uh, captured Jerusalem, which was a Canaanite stronghold for generations, and he made it his capital city. DAVID HAS TAKEN THE ARK OF THE COVENANT WHICH WAS REALLY FORGOTTEN ABOUT AND NEGLECTED BY GOD'S PEOPLE AND HE MOVED IT TO JERUSALEM TO MAKE GOD AND THE ARK THE CENTER OF THE NATION'S LIFE AND THINGS ARE GOING SO WELL FOR DAVID. WE CAME TO 2 SAMUEL CHAPTER 7 AND AT THAT TIME DAVID WAS JUST REFLECTING ABOUT HOW GOOD GOD HAS BEEN TO HIM AND HE HAD A DESIRE IN HIS HEART TO BUILD A HOUSE FOR GOD. Build a temple for the ark. And at first it looked like that was a great idea, but then God pushed pause on that and said, David, you're not going to build a house for me. My plans are to build a house for you. And by a house, it's, God wasn't talking about a physical house of bricks and mortar. David already had one of those. He had a cedar palace. He was going to build David the house of David, the dynasty of David. There always would be a descendant of David on the throne of Israel. But as we studied 2 Samuel chapter 7, we discovered that there is some interesting prophecy in there about one particular descendant of David who looked rather unique. This descendant of David would be biologically descended from David, but God would be his father. He would be known as the Son of God. God would set up his kingdom, and that kingdom would last forever. Did anybody see Jesus in that? That's Jesus, isn't it? The New Testament is very clear that that is a prophecy of, of Jesus and foretelling that. Now, as we get, turn the corner and we get to 2 Samuel chapter 8-10, through 10, these really are the high points of David's life, the high points of David's reign as king. Today in 2 Samuel Chapter 8, we're gonna see David continues conquering kingdoms around him. He brings great prosperity and peace to Israel. We'll see David is also an able and good administrator. We get next week to 2 Samuel Chapter 9, we'll see David is a man of great integrity, and he's also a leader with great compassion. But this all these good things in David's life will set us up for 2 Samuel Chapter eleven, where all of a sudden at the pinnacle of everything, when everything is going so well and he is enjoying God's blessing, David engages in a moral failure with a woman named Bathsheba. And to cover that moral failure, he murders her husband. And from there on out, things start going downhill for David. It's uh, sort of the old adage, you know, pride comes before a fall. Success comes before sin. Uh, That's what it's like for David. If you have your outlines, take them out. And I'm just going to begin with some section on the background here. Some essential background we need to know to understand this chapter, thanks Paul, is that three times in this chapter, or three times in the Bible rather, God speaks of giving his people the promised land. He speaks of this to Abraham, speaks of this to Moses, he speaks of this to Joshua, and when God speaks of giving his people the promised land, he actually gives boundaries for what the promised land is, and he gives those boundaries uh, to those three men. Now, up to this point, God's people have only possessed what is a small portion of the promised land, not the full extent of the promised land. But today, we will find that under David, for the first time in Israel's history, they will possess the full extent of the promised land that God has given to them. Let me show you the boundaries that God originally intended for them to have. Uh, The first quote comes from Abraham. God said to Abraham, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I will give this land, and notice this, from the river of Egypt, that's the Nile River, to the great river, the river Euphrates. So from the Nile to the Euphrates, let's put that up. The Nile River, you can see, is all the way down there by Egypt. Euphrates River is all the way up top there. That's the full extent of the Promised Land. You can see in the center there, really small is the Dead Sea, and you can't even see hardly the Sea of Galilee. The Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee is the portion of the Promised Land that the Israelites possessed at that time. But after this chapter, they're going to possess all of this. Look also at what um, God said to Moses. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory will be from the wilderness to the Lebanon, from the river, we're talking the Nile River, the river Euphrates, that's the northern extent, same thing, to the western sea, all the way to the shore there. Same thing if you look at Joshua, from the wilderness. And this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, going toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. So now that God's king is on the throne, God's king will be setting up God's kingdom. DAVID, YOU MAY WANT TO THINK OF HIM AS A NEW JOSHUA. REMEMBER HOW JOSHUA WENT IN AND CONQUERED THE PROMISED LAND, BUT JOSHUA DIDN'T FINISH CONQUERING THE PROMISED LAND? DAVID IS PICKING UP THAT MANTLE, AND HE IS GOING TO FINISH THE CONQUERING OF THE PROMISED LAND, AND HE'S GOING TO DEAL WITH THE ENEMIES OF THE PEOPLE OF GOD. SO WHAT WE ARE STUDYING THIS MORNING IS NOT JUST A SERIES OF OLD TESTAMENT LAND DISPUTES, IT'S THE NEW JOSHUA CONTINUING THE CONQUEST OF THE PROMISED LAND, TAKING OUT THE ENEMIES OF GOD'S PEOPLE. ANOTHER THING THAT I WANT YOU TO NOTICE, WE'LL SEE THIS AS WE GET THROUGH THIS, DAVID, AS KING OVER THE PROMISED LAND, TAKING OUT THE ENEMIES OF GOD'S PEOPLE AND REIGNING AND RULING IN THE PROMISED LAND, IS A MINI FORESHADOWING OF JESUS. Because Jesus is the son of David, who is also God's anointed king. But Jesus is not just the rightful ruler of the promised land. Jesus is the rightful ruler of the entire earth. And Jesus is the one who will reign and rule over all the new creation itself. So many of the things we see about David and his reigning and ruling in the promised land will also be true about Jesus and his reigning and ruling over the new creation for all of eternity. But we'll learn more about that as we get into our study. So let's dive in. Number one, David conquered the nations around Israel. The first nation we see him conquering are the Philistines. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. Well, who are these Philistines and where did they live? Let me show you the graphic. THEY ARE ON THE COAST, RIGHT THERE. Uh, THEY ARE ON THE the WESTERN SIDE OF THE ISRAELITES. Um, ETHNICALLY, THEY they ARE DISTANT FROM THE ISRAELITES. Uh, ORIGINALLY, THEY'RE DESCENDED FROM THE EGYPTIANS. THEY FIRST SAILED TO THIS AREA AND SET UP A COLONY IN THIS AREA. THEN WE FIND THEM FIRST MENTIONED IN THE BOOK OF JUDGES, CHAPTER 3. But they were very prolific, became quite strong, and we find them as aggressive enemies of the Israelites by the time we get to Judges, chapters 13 through 16. That's the time of Samson. At that point, they were in constant battle with the Israelites. In the days of Samuel, you'll remember, they even defeated the Israelites and at one time then took the Ark of the Covenant back to their cities which really didn't go well because God was quite capable of defending himself. And he inflicted the Philistines with tumors and mice until they gave the Ark of the Covenant back on their own. They They were constantly attacking the Israelites. In fact, one of the reasons that the Israelites asked for a king was to defend them against the Philistines. And King Saul was that first king. And Saul's job, if you remember from earlier studies in 1 Samuel, he was to defeat the Philistines. But when Saul became more involved in sin and in pride, he actually didn't defeat the Philistines at all. And in the last final battle at the end of 1 Samuel, he was defeated by the Philistines and ultimately killed by the Philistines. But then comes the second king. WHOSE NAME WAS DAVID. DAVID WAS GOD'S CHOSEN KING. AND WHAT MARKED HIM OUT AS DIFFERENT WAS HE ALWAYS HAD SUCCESS AGAINST THE PHILISTINES. EVEN WHEN HE WAS JUST A TEENAGE BOY, EVEN WHEN ALL HE HAD WAS A SHEPHERD'S SLING, HE WENT AGAINST THE BIGGEST AND BADDEST PHILISTINE OF THEM ALL. REMEMBER HIS NAME? GOLIATH. AND DAVID USED A SHEPHERD'S SLING TO SEND A ROCK RIGHT THROUGH HIS BRAIN, SENDING THE GUY COLLAPSING. DAVID CONSISTENTLY HAD VICTORY OVER THE PHILISTINES, FAR MORE THAN ANYBODY ELSE. AND THEN WE SAW IN 2 SAMUEL CHAPTER 5, REMEMBER DAVID PUSHED THE PHILISTINES OUT OF THE ISRAELITES' IMMEDIATE TERRITORY AND SET UP BOUNDARIES AGAIN FOR THE ISRAELITES. Now in this chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 8, David is going to take the fight to the Philistines' homeland. David is going to eliminate the Philistine threat once and for all. In fact, we read the text that says David subdued them. The Hebrew word behind the English word subdued is very strong. It means to completely annihilate, to to really defeat them to the point that they cannot recover. David cripples the nation for good. And then we read this part. And David took Methagama out of the hand of the Philistines. At first we say, well, that must be a city name, Methagama. Never heard of it, never seen it mentioned before. Now I'm going to tell you, that from my studies, I don't think uh, this is a city name. I disagree with the translators of the ESV on this one. Methagama in Hebrew means the bridle of the motherland or the bridal of the mother city. What it's saying is David took control of the capital city of the Philistines. That shows you the extent of the defeat of this nation. Now, you wonder, well, what is the capital city of the Philistines? Here's where we can have some fun. If we go to 1 Chronicles chapter 18, it's a parallel account of what is happening here in 2 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Chronicles 18 tells us this. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took Gath and its villages out of the hand of the Philistines. So taking the bridle of the mother city means that David took control of the capital city of the Philistines, which is Gath. That shows you how badly defeated they were. It would be like today if the Russians or the Chinese took control of Washington, D.C. and New York City. I mean, that would pretty much spell the end of our country, wouldn't it? That's what David does to the Philistines. In fact, the defeat of the Philistines is so severe that while we will have them mentioned later in the Bible, never again after this will they pose a threat to God's people because they are so completely decimated. That brings us to the next people group that he conquered, the Moabites, and he defeated Moab. The Moabites, they were sort of the, the... TO THE EAST OF THE ISRAELITES, ON THE EAST SIDE OF THE DEAD SEA. GO AHEAD AND PUT THAT UP. YOU CAN SEE WHERE THEY ARE IN THAT AREA. THIS IS THE the EASTERN EXTENT OF THE PROMISED LAND. WHILE THE PHILISTINES ARE NOT BIOLOGICALLY RELATED TO THE ISRAELITES, THE MOABITES ACTUALLY ARE BIOLOGICALLY RELATED TO THE ISRAELITES. Uh, THEY'RE descendants OF LOT, ABRAHAM'S NEPHEW. While the Moabites are relatives of the Israelites, they have absolutely no love for the Israelites whatsoever. For instance, when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt and heading to the Promised Land, we read that the Moabites refused to allow them safe passage through their region. Later on, we'll see that the Moabites that they did is they actually sent young women around the Israelite men to seduce them away from their wives and away from their God. And incidentally, they were relatively successful in doing that. That shows you how um, tricky these guys are. We're also seeing later on in the Bible that they had a king of the Moabites named Balak and he wanted to to curse the Israelites. So he hired a prophet named Balaam to curse the Israelites, to hopefully have God start to fight against them. But Balaam was pretty honest with Balak. He says, hey, you can hire me, but I can only say what God puts in my mouth to say. And three times, well, uh, Balaam tried to curse the Israelites. Every time he spoke, he ended up blessing the Israelites, the exact opposite of what Balak wanted done. Speaking of that, in numbers 24, which is when Balaam was offering these curses that were actually turned into blessings, one of those um, lines says this, in numbers 24:17: "A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab." That at one time in the future, there will be a star or a scepter that comes from the Israelites that will crush and destroy the Moabites. That prophecy in Numbers 24 is filled, fulfilled here in Second Samuel chapter 8. That star or that scepter who destroys the Moabites is David. That's what he's about to do. Well, I've given you negative history about the Moabites, I want to just take a moment to give you a little bit of positive history about them. If you've been with us years ago when we studied the book of Ruth, you'll remember that Ruth was a Moabite. And she was a Moabite who actually left the Moabites and became an Israelite and began worshiping the true God of Israel. She ties into the story because she is actually King David's great... She is actually King David's grandmother. Pretty neat. THERE WAS ALSO A TIME WHEN THE KING OF MOAB WAS NICE TO DAVID. YOU REMEMBER BACK IN 1 SAMUEL WHERE DAVID WAS ON THE RUN FROM KING SAUL. YOU MAY REMEMBER THAT THE KING OF the MOABITES ALLOWED HIM TO STAY IN HIS LAND FOR A PERIOD OF TIME. AND DAVID BROUGHT HIS PARENTS AND HAD THEM THERE WITH THE KING OF THE MOABITES AND LEFT THEM THERE FOR SAFETY. NOW WHAT I'M ABOUT TO SHARE WITH YOU IS NOT IN THE BIBLE. It is written about in Jewish history, so this may or may not be true. But Jewish history has written down that the king of the Moabites, when he was supposed to be a protector of David's parents, actually turned against David's parents and killed both of them, which would probably explain what we're about re- to read that happens next. And David conquers the Moabites, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one full line to be spared. It gets rid of two-thirds of the Moabite population. Now at first, we're reading that going, man, David is a really nasty dude. But remember, he's a new Joshua, He's conquering the promised land just like Joshua did. He's only destroying the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people who are resisting him. And typically, what was supposed to happen is there shouldn't be one thirds left. Typically, all of them would be destroyed. You wonder, well, why did David leave a third of the Moabites alive? Here's what I believe is we're going to see, as we continue, David is about to conquer so much territory that there is no conceivable way that the existing Israelites can hold that territory or, or maintain that territory. So he seems to leave a portion of the people alive for to be able to work the land and to bring the produce of the land back into Israel as tribute as they recognize David as the rightful king. Because that's what we find happens next and the moabites those those who were left became servants to David and brought tribute they bring produce and they bring uh, products of the land into Jerusalem now i began wondering i wonder what they bring and how much they bring Does the bible tell us so i began looking around and i found this verse in second kings about later in biblical history now misha king of moab was a sheep breeder and he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. Boy, that's a lot. Uh, but that's the tribute that they were forced, forced to bring. This brings us to another people group in the full extent of the promised land that David destroys. It's called the Zobites. The Zobites. It's from verse 3. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. Now you wonder, where is this guy coming from? Let me show you on the map. Right above the red there is the Euphrates River. So this is the northern tip of the Promised Land, the part that Hadadezer occupies and controls. Um, They're known as the Zobites. Incidentally, this is only the second time we'll find them mentioned in the Bible. Now, here's a chance for a little biblical humor. Hopefully, you get some laughing on this one. At least I did when I ran across it. Hadadezer means um, the one who is helped by Hadad. That's his name. Well, who's Hadad? Hadad is the storm god they worship. Hadad means the one who smashes. So he says, I am helped by the one who smashes people. So he thinks he's out there playing whack-a-mole. Why do you think it works for him against David? The guy who said he can play whack-a-mole to everybody else ends up getting whacked pretty hard by David and doesn't get a victory out of it at all. What is this part where it says he went to restore his power at the River Euphrates? We haven't gotten to this yet, but when we get to Second Samuel chapter ten, that is a chapter about a battle that took place earlier in history where David uh, battled with Hadadezer. David completely defeated Hadadezer at that time, and this is a second battle that's talked about where Hadadezer is going to try and regain the territory in the Euphrates area that he has already lost one time to David. And he's about ready to lose it all over again. Because we read this, And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers, And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for a hundred chariots. Well, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of horses. And I've read this before, and I began wondering, well, why did he hamstring all these horses? What is hamstringing a horse in the first place? What's going on here? Hamstringing a horse is cutting a tendon in a horse's knee or a a horse's hoof that really reduces its speed. So the horse is still productive for agricultural purposes and things like this, but it's not going to be able to be a war horse, or it's not going to be able to be a, a, a race horse. Why would David do that? Deuteronomy chapter 17 IN THAT CHAPTER, GOD GIVES TO MOSES THE LAW FOR ISRAEL'S FUTURE KINGS. A COUPLE THINGS. ISRAEL'S FUTURE KINGS ARE FORBIDDEN FROM ACQUIRING MANY WIVES. SOLOMON GETS THAT ONE WRONG. THEY'RE ALSO FORBIDDEN FROM ACQUIRING MANY HORSES. WHY WOULD THAT BE SOMETHING THEY'RE FORBIDDEN TO DO? IN THE ANCIENT WORLD, Kings found their confidence. They found their security and their power in the size of their military. Horses and chariots in the ancient world were the rough equivalent of battle tanks today. A king with many horses and many chariots was considered to be very powerful and that king found his security in the size and power of his army. But Israel's kings were to be different. They're not to place their confidence in horses and chariots. They're to place their confidence for the future in the Lord their God. He is the one who holds their future in their hands. Which is why you find David writing Psalm chapter 20, verse 7. Maybe you've read this. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Hadadezer had many horses and many chariots when he went into battle with David. David had no horses and no chariots, but which way did the battle go? David won because God was on his side. Didn't matter the strength of the military machine. In fact, if you start to think about this and go in your mind through biblical history, remember the Exodus when God's people came out of Egypt and they were defenseless, and then Pharaoh decided to send his army with horses and chariots after them to slaughter them in the desert? BUT GOD STEPPED IN, AND GOD HELD THE HORSES AND CHARIOTS OFF, AND HE SPLIT THE RED SEA AND BROUGHT HIS PEOPLE ACROSS on dry GROUND, BUT WHEN THE HORSES AND CHARIOTS WENT in AFTERWARDS, GOD BROUGHT THE WALLS OF WATER BACK IN ON TOP OF THEM AND DESTROYED THEM. WHAT MATTERS? THE STRENGTH OF YOUR MILITARY? OR WHOSE SIDE GOD IS FIGHTING ON? In the future, we'll find that the Israelites will go against, battling against other kingdoms that have powerful horses and chariots. And one time they go to fight, and God sends a torrential rainstorm in the middle of it, and the horses and chariots all end up stuck in the mud and can't go anywhere. And so they become quite easy picking for the Israelites. So David hamstrings these horses as a way of saying, I'm not going to trust IN HORSES AND CHARIOTS FOR MY MILITARY VICTORIES. I'M ONLY GOING TO TRUST IN YOU, GOD, NOT OUR MILITARY MACHINE. WE FIND THE SAME THING BEING TALKED ABOUT LATER IN THE BOOK OF ISAIAH, WHERE IT SAYS THIS, WOE TO THOSE WHO GO DOWN TO EGYPT FOR HELP, AND RELY ON HORSES, AND WHO TRUST IN CHARIOTS, BECAUSE THEY ARE MANY, AND IN HORSEMEN, BECAUSE THEY ARE VERY STRONG, BUT DO NOT LOOK TO THE HOLY ONE OF ISRAEL OR CONSULT THE LORD." WHAT'S MORE POWERFUL IN THE OUTCOME OF THIS LIFE? YOUR MILITARY MACHINE? OR THE GOD WHO CREATED THIS EARTH AND WHO SUSTAINS US EVERY DAY? OR YOU GO TO DEUTERONOMY, WHAT DOES GOD SAY TO HIS PEOPLE? WHEN YOU GO OUT TO WAR AGAINST YOUR ENEMIES AND SEE HORSES AND CHARIOTS AND AN ARMY LARGER THAN YOUR OWN, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So this is why David is having victories. It's not because he has a superior military machine or because he's smarter or quicker than others, but because God is on his side and he's not relying on his own strength. Now for future kings in Israel, uh, many of them will not obey this prohibition against horses and chariots. As far as I can tell, it was Absalom, David's rebellious son, who was the first to bring horses and chariots into the life of Israel. Next, it will be Solomon, who will put a lot of energy into horses and chariots. We read this in First Kings chapter 4. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And after Solomon, horses and chariots seem to become a regular part of Israelite life and warfare. But we do read this, that later on in Israelite history, there's a, a godly king named Josiah. And as part of Josiah's reforms and in returning to the Lord, guess what he did with the horses and chariots? He burned the chariots and got rid of the horses and said, we are placing our trust in God alone. We are going to follow what God said in Deuteronomy 17 was the right way for Israel's kings to live. Now, here's a great application for us. Today, what kind of security does our country have for the future? Does the security of our country come from all the nuclear weapons we have in silos? Does the security for our country come in all the hypersonic missiles that we're working and racing with to see if we can beat China? The only security for our country comes in the grace of God who's allowed us to exist as a nation. Isn't that true? We can apply that personally. Where do you find your security for your future? DO YOU FIND IT IN THE SIZE OF YOUR IRA? DO YOU FIND IT IN THE SIZE OF YOUR PORTFOLIO AND SAY, LOOK, I HAVE A GREAT TREASURE LAID UP, SET, I'M SET FOR MANY YEARS TO COME. THAT'S NOT YOUR SECURITY FOR YOUR FUTURE, FOLKS. YOUR SECURITY COMES FROM THE GOD WHO CREATED YOU AND THE GOD WHO LOVES YOU AND THE GOD WHO holds YOUR LIFE IN THE VERY PALM OF HIS HANDS. LET US NOT FORGET where our true security for our future comes from and find security in wealth and assets and in things. That brings us to another group of people that David now conquers, which are the Syrians. To reach Hadadezer and Zobah, he had to pass through a territory controlled by the Syrians. They controlled Damascus. DAMASCUS WAS 25 MILES ROUGHLY SOUTHEAST FROM HADADEZER in HIS TERRITORY. LET ME SHOW YOU ON THE GRAPHIC WHERE IT COMES UP. THERE IT IS. YOU CAN SEE ZOBA ABOVE THAT. THAT'S THE SYRIAN AREA. area. DAMASCUS, SOMETIMES ALSO KNOWN as, AS ARAM. LET'S SEE WHAT DAVID DOES TO THESE GUYS. AND WHEN THE SYRIANS, THAT IS IN HEBREW, ARAM, OF DAMASCUS, CAME TO HELP HADADEZER, KING OF ZOBA, DAVID STRUCK DOWN 22,000 MEN OF THE SYRIANS. THAT IS THE MEN OF ARAM. SO HERE'S MORE FUN. Hadadezer, THE GUY WHO SAYS, THE GOD WHO SMASHES IS THE ONE WHO HELPS ME, IS OBVIOUSLY IN NEED OF HELP, BECAUSE THE GOD WHO SMASHES ISN'T PROVIDING MUCH HELP. SO HE CALLS HIS NEIGHBORS, THE SYRIANS, IN FOR HELP, TO SEE IF THEY COULD HELP HIM BEAT DAVID AND REGAIN HIS TERRITORY AT THE Euphrates. THAT DOESN'T WORK TOO WELL FOR THEM. THEY END UP LOSING 22,000 OF THEIR OWN MEN TO DAVID. AND THEN WE READ THIS. THEN DAVID PUT GARRISONS IN ARAM OF DAMASCUS, AND THE SYRIANS BECAME SERVANTS TO DAVID, AND BROUGHT HIM TRIBUTE. You can think of garrisons as military outposts. You can think of them as police stations. Once again, David decimates the Syrians, leaves a very small population, enough to farm the land, enough to raise the crops, enough to bring, have a harvest, and then to bring that harvest back to Jerusalem and give it as tribute to David. Now, we may think that David's pretty powerful. David's pretty mighty. He's pretty resourceful. (laughs) But remember what's happening. David is without horses. David is without chariots. He's battling powerful nations with horses, with chariots, with the latest modern military technology of the day, and God is giving him amazing, overwhelming victory. And to make sure we do not think this victory is coming from David's wit and resourcefulness, the text just reminds us AND THE LORD GAVE VICTORY TO DAVID WHEREVER HE WENT. ALL THESE VICTORIES ARE BECAUSE GOD IS LARGE AND IN CHARGE. AND GOD'S FIGHTING ON DAVID'S SIDE BECAUSE DAVID IS HIS ANOINTED KING. NOW, JUST SO WE WOULD GET THIS STRAIGHT, DON'T THINK THESE VICTORIES CAME EASY. DON'T THINK THEY they WERE WITHOUT SWEAT. AND THEY WERE WITHOUT TEARS AND WITHOUT DIFFICULTY. PSALM Psalm 3 uh, RECORDS ONE OF DAVID'S PRAYERS AS HE WAS FIGHTING HIS ENEMIES. AND I, I LIKE THIS. DAVID SAYS THIS, ARISE, O LORD, SAVE ME, O MY GOD. HELP, I'M IN A DESPERATE SITUATION FIGHTING THESE GUYS. FOR YOU STRIKE ALL MY ENEMIES ON THE CHEEK. YOU BREAK THE TEETH OF THE WICKED. THIS IS A GREAT PRAYER. GOD, I PRAY YOU PUNCH THEM IN THE MOUTH. PUNCH THEM SO HARD YOU BREAK THE TEETH OUT OF THEIR FACE. SO THOSE GUYS WHO LIKE THE TESTOSTERONE STUFF, THIS IS YOUR PRAYER RIGHT THERE, YOU KNOW. GOD, GIVE THEM A PUNCH, right? GIVE THEM A BLOODY LIP. AND THEN WE READ ABOUT ANOTHER GROUP OF PEOPLE DAVID CONQUERED, WHICH ARE THE EDOMITES. THESE OCCUR A LITTLE BIT LATER IN THE TEXT, BUT I'M BRINGING THEM UP HERE A LITTLE EARLY. LET ME SHOW YOU WHERE THEY COME FROM. Uh, THERE THEY ARE. THEY'RE ALL THE WAY TO THE SOUTH. Uh, Roughly the southern area of the Promised Land. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. The Edomites are relatives of the Israelites. You'll remember Jacob is renamed as to Israel, and he has 12 sons, and there goes the 12 tribes. Well, Jacob had a half-brother named Esau. You remember the story with him? And Esau's descendants are the Edomites. Initially, it seems, David planned not to attack these people, at least not at this time. But what we find is that while David was busy in the north, Battling Hadadezer and the the Zoabites as well as the Syrians of Damascus going against two kings at the same time. Remember, no modern military technology with horses and chariots. While he's doing that, the Edomites in the south saw an opportunity to attack and conquer Israelite territory because David was gone. And this makes it very difficult because now David is fighting a war on two opposite fronts and psalm 60 is written by david in that time of desperation this is the biblical heading of psalm 60 to tell us this to the choir master according to shushan eduth which i have no idea what that one is a victim of david for instruction when he strove with Aram Naharim, that's the king of the Naharim, that's the Syrians, and with Aram Zobah, that's Hadadezer, the king of the Zoabites. And when Joab, on his return, struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. So if we skim through these verses in Psalm 60, it gives us a sense of the desperation of the plight David felt himself in while fighting up north yet being attacked by the Edomites down south. It reads this way, "O oh God, you have rejected us. You've broken our defenses. You've been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open." Repair its breaches, for it totters, the, the land. We're about ready to lose our nation, is what he's saying. Then he says later, who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O, grant us help against our foe. For vain is the salvation of men. With God, we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. God, unless you come and rescue us, we won't make it. You are the one who will enable us to tread down our foes. So while David is battling north and south... What we find as we look at the parallel passage of this in 1 Chronicles 18 is that Joab, who's leading the army up north, decides to send his brother Abishai with a contingent of soldiers to go to battle the Edomites down south. And we read this. And Abishai, the son of Zerui, killed 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then, after Joab, his brother, finished defeating Hadadezer in the north, He also went down south and joined Abishai and then killed another 12,000 Edomites, once again severely decimating the nation and bringing them all to become servants of David. That brings us to what happens next, which is the wealth. David brought the wealth of the nations to Jerusalem. The wealth of Hadadezer was forcibly brought to Jerusalem. We see this in verses 7 and 8. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and from Berothoi, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. Incidentally, I don't believe these shields were shields that were actually used in battle. If you know gold, it is extremely heavy. These were shields that were probably used in ceremonial parades. The point is, David has so decimated Hadadezer, he walks right into his capital city and says, oh, gold shields, I think I'm going to take those. Just takes them right off his hand and brings them right back to Jerusalem. Walks to other cities, oh, lots of bronze. I could use that in the future. Let's just move it to my home. That shows you the amount of decimation and control that David has over these places. Incidentally, this gold and this bronze will later be used by Solomon in the building of the temple. Speaking of this, what we see is, as David conquers these nations around him and brings them into submission, the wealth of the nations all begins to flow into Jerusalem to the honor of God's anointed king. And as I was noticing that, I then thought to myself, isn't that the same thing that will happen in all of eternity with Jesus, who is God's anointed king? Doesn't the book of Revelation tell us that in eternity, the wealth of the nations will flow to the new Jerusalem? Remember I told you David's conquering of the promised land is a miniature representation of Jesus and his reign in the new Jerusalem. Look what it says in Revelation 21-24. By its light will the nations walk, that's speaking of the new Jerusalem, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Same thing that was happening here. Then we read this the wealth of Hamath was willingly brought to Jerusalem. Remember, remember the wealth of the Zobites was forcibly brought. But this guy is a little different. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son, Joram, to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. So when Toy, king of Hamath, hears that David is sort of the new big guy in town and he's wiped out his enemy, Hadadezer, he didn't want to go to war with David, did he? Instead of going to war with David, he chose to welcome David. He chose to congratulate David, and he chose to bless David, even sending his son to David with a large gift for David. And this reminds us, there are really two different kinds of reactions to God's anointed kings. The Edomites, the Philistines, the Zoabites, they fought against God's anointed king. They resisted God's anointed king, and they were destroyed by God's anointed king. But Toy, king of Hamath, he didn't fight against David. He welcomed David. And he blessed David, and ultimately he was blessed by David. And we see this in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is about the kings of the earth and their different reactions to David. Will you fight against him and be destroyed by God's anointed king or will you welcome him and be blessed by God's anointed king? We read this. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. But then notice this. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. So will you be a king that takes refuge in David, like Toy, king of Hamath? Or will you be a king who resists David and is destroyed by him? Now here's a great application for us. If you've ever studied Psalm 2, you know that Psalm 2, while it talks about David, God's anointed king, it's very clearly also talking about JESUS, GOD'S ANOINTED KING. AND THAT THERE ARE TWO REACTIONS TO JESUS. IN THIS LIFE, YOU CAN RESIST HIM. YOU CAN FIGHT AGAINST HIM. BUT WHEN HE GOES TO SET UP HIS KINGDOM, WHEN HE RETURNS, YOU WILL BE DESTROYED BY HIM. OR YOU CAN WELCOME HIM. YOU CAN EMBRACE HIM. AND WHEN HE COMES TO SET UP HIS KINGDOM, YOU WILL BE BLESSED BY HIM. THIS MORNING, WHO ARE YOU LIKE? ARE YOU MORE LIKE THE EDOMITES, THE PHILISTINES, THE MOABITES? OR ARE YOU MORE LIKE TOI, KING OF Hanath? INSTEAD OF RESISTING GOD'S CHOSEN KING, YOU WELCOME AND YOU EMBRACE HIM AND ULTIMATELY WILL BE BLESSED BY HIM. NOW WE READ THIS, THE WEALTH OF THE NATIONS WAS DEDICATED TO GOD. THESE ALSO, KING DAVID, DEDICATED TO THE LORD, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, and Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. David took all of this vast amounts of wealth and didn't put it in his bank account. He gave it all to the Lord because he was very aware who was the one who gave him all these victories when he was without horses, when he was without chariots, when he was fighting two kings up to the north, at the same time, he was forced to fight the Edomites down in the south. God is the one who gave him the victories, and out of gratitude, he gave him all the blessings back to God. This applies to us. You know, we may not be a, an anointed king conquering the promised land, but isn't it true? that any bit of success we experience in this life, any good blessing we have in this life is not by our own ingenuity and our own resourcefulness and our own power. It's all a gift from God to us. Isn't it appropriate that when God has blessed us with so much that we give back a portion of that blessing in worship and in gratitude to him? AND WHEN PEOPLE CHOOSE NOT TO GIVE BACK A PORTION OF THAT BLESSING THAT GOD HAS GIVEN THEM BACK TO HIM, AND they SOMETIMES THEY SAY, WELL, I CAN'T DO THAT BECAUSE IF I GIVE THAT TO GOD, I WON'T HAVE ENOUGH FOR ME. WHO'S PROVIDING FOR YOUR NEEDS RIGHT NOW? YOU OR GOD? GOD IS THE ONE WHO'S TAKING CARE OF YOUR NEEDS. WE ALL CAN AFFORD TO GIVE. AND IF WE REFUSE TO GIVE, IT SHOWS SORT OF A LACK OF GRATITUDE, A LACK OF GRATITUDE TO THE GOD WHO HAS BEEN SO GOOD so kind, and so amazingly loving and provided for all of us. This brings us to our third point. David reigned with justice and righteousness. It says, so David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity, and I noticed I put this in all, in capital letters, to all his people. David's kingdom and David's government was completely unlike what we experience today in our country and what is experienced by governments around the world. Governments are known for corruption. They're known for playing favorites. They're known for dirty politics. David refused to have any of that in part of his kingdom. In Psalm 101, David wrote about what his kingdom would be like. And here's what he said. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. You talk against people in the government behind their back, I cut you off. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Proud people, full of themselves, you get cut off. I will look with favor on the people in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land." CUTTING OFF ALL THE EVILDOERS FROM THE CITY OF THE LORD." DAVID'S GOVERNMENT WAS JUST, IT WAS FAIR, IT WAS RIGHT. BOY, WOULDN'T THAT BE REFRESHING? BUT THAT'S WHAT HE WAS KNOWN FOR. NOW I'M GOING TO JUMP TO THE END AND WRAP IT UP. AND THE MAIN THING I WANT YOU TO TAKE AWAY IS THIS BIG PICTURE. THAT DAVID'S REIGN AS GUIDES ANOINTED OVER THE PROMISED LAND WAS JUST REALLY A PREVIEW OF JESUS' REIGN OVER CREATION AND THE NEW CREATION ITSELF. NUMBER ONE, JUST AS DAVID DESTROYED THOSE WHO RESISTED GOD'S KINGDOM, BUT BLESSED THOSE WHO WELCOMED IT, JESUS WILL DESTROY THOSE WHO RESIST HIS COMING KINGDOM, BUT HE WILL BLESS THOSE WHO WELCOME IT. WHERE ARE YOU WITH THAT? NUMBER TWO, JUST AS THE WEALTH OF THE NATIONS WAS BROUGHT TO JERUSALEM, IN THE NEW CREATION, THE WEALTH OF THE NATIONS WILL BE BROUGHT TO THE NEW JERUSALEM. WHAT THAT MEANS IS IN ALL OF ETERNITY, WHAT OUR WHOLE LIVES WILL BE ABOUT, WE'RE ABOUT GIVING GLORY AND HONOR AND PRAISE TO JESUS, THE ONE WHO WAS OUR GOOD AND JUST KING. AND THAT BRINGS US TO OUR THIRD AND FINAL POINT. JUST AS DAVID REIGNED WITH RIGHTEOUSNESS AND JUSTICE IN A WORLD OF CORRUPTION, Jesus is the one who will reign with righteousness and justness in the new creation. And my friends, as you look at the news, see all the corruption in our government and all the corruption in this world, let that whet your appetite to help you fix your eyes upon Jesus for the day when he will reign over everything and we will be his subjects and government will be good and refreshing to us not a constant source of frustration let us pray Heavenly Father thank you so much for your word thank you for this chapter which gives a better understanding of the extent of David's power and David's conquering and David's reign as your anointed king AND MAY DAVID'S REIGN OF CONQUERING HIS ENEMIES, AND THE WEALTH OF THE NATIONS COMING INTO into JERUSALEM, AND DAVID REIGNING WITH JUSTICE AND EQUITY, HELP US FIX OUR EYES ON THE FACT THAT ONE DAY, JESUS, YOU TOO WILL REIGN OVER ALL OF THE EARTH, DESTROYING YOUR ENEMIES AND WELCOMING YOUR FRIENDS. YOU TOO WILL ONE DAY HAVE ALL THE WEALTH OF THE PLANET POURED INTO HONOR AND GLORY TO YOU, AND YOUR KINGDOM WILL BE justice. IT'LL BE RIGHTEOUSNESS, IT'LL BE FAIRNESS, IT'LL BE PERFECTION, IT'LL BE THE THING THAT WE ALL LONG FOR IN OUR HEARTS. AND AS GOD'S PEOPLE, MAY WE FIX OUR EYES ON THAT WONDERFUL DAY OF YOUR RETURN. WE ASK THIS IN CHRIST'S NAME, AMEN. THIS HAS BEEN A PRESENTATION OF CROSSWINDS CHURCH. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.